I just woke up. Don't tell me it's time already. Another episode? Welcome back to your 12th favorite podcast, Reeducated, where we reimagine, rethink, and reinvent education. It's your host, Gautam Yegapin, alive and blessed to present today's conversation. Stay thirsty for knowledge, and I guess water too. Welcome back to yet another Reeducated episode. Today is our fifth episode of the season two India chapter. I'm really excited to close off the kind of individual episodes and move into interviewing all the people I met in India. But to close off today, we are starting with the month of December. I am very pleased to introduce yet another one of my really good friends, Miss Saba Coker. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I am good. I can't believe I'm talking to you on this i feel like you've never heard me use my podcast voice how does it sound i've heard it just not in this capacity (laughs) that's funny and so you let tell us a little bit about yourself so you are a lawyer how is that going it's going well uh yeah i'm a lawyer i'm a patent litigator not sure how connected i am to the education world but i i uh have received an education in my life. Yeah. And you were in school for a long time. I was. Yeah. I went to law school. I went to UC Hastings. In the in San Francisco, right? Yeah. Nice. And now you work in the Bay Area as well. I do. I work for a firm in the Bay Area. And <laughs> uh, my firm my firm does everything, but my office exclusively does patent litigation. Mm, great. And you have you been liking your work? I have, yeah, it's great. Nice. I feel like I've been trying to ask more people of trying to figure out, especially with a lot of the professors that I work with, what is it about the thing that they study or the thing that they do that really drives them to it? So I feel like there's always a lot to kind of gain from a person's perspective on why they think what they do is important. But yeah, I'm really excited to kind of share this story with you because I feel when I think about my India trip, you played a pretty big role just in all the conversations that we had throughout my time there. So when I was like, who do I want to do my fifth episode? I was like, I mean, it had to be you. I just feel like you played a big role in my time there and kind of had probably had a your own understanding of what that trip was like just from talking to me all the time. So I'm really glad uh, you get to host this today. Thanks. I'm honored. I'm really excited to be here and I have a lot of questions. So All right. No. All right. So I was thinking perhaps we could start with the farm. So in December after, so the last episode concluded when I was in Himachal Pradesh in the Himalayas, and we talked extensively about the critical thinking camp that uh, I I witnessed there. And so after that, I went to Amritsar. I stayed there for a few days. Um, The Golden Temple, which is the largest and the most central Sikh temple. It was an amazing experience. I got to make chapatis at they they have the largest uh food kitchen for um they feed everyone so like i remember i was even i went to a temple and work today and i just remembered like it was really cool a lot of the people in that city were like there is not a single hungry person in this city because they would feed everyone so if you're ever hungry having a bad a tough time in your life you can always go to that temple every meal to eat and so there was they were able to say that about their city which was amazing so i was able to experience that and then i went to mumbai stayed there for two weeks I had a lovely time there. And then I came back to South India. And so 
this time I was in a city called Irod. Near it, um, there was a village called Sivagiri. And so over there, I uh, worked. And I'm so excited to kind of get into what this organization was. So in episode two, we talked about the organization that I had worked at in Gudalur. And one of the things that I had talked about then was how their approach to education was so holistic, right? I think a lot of times when we look at organizations across the board, especially educational ones, they focus on education alone. But it became very clear during this experience that one of the hardest things about being educated properly is children who don't feel safe. If you're going into an environment and you don't feel safe, there is no amount of excellence from a teacher or from curriculum that can help a student like that. So one of the so alongside of improving the systems of education, you have to improve the healthcare system, the transportation, every part that can impact a student's life. And so some of the organizations that I saw really approached fixing just education holistically, right? Making sure the kids had the best healthcare possible, making sure that they had connections for employment and for social mobility, making sure they had the ability to be transported when they needed to, right? And, and so all of these things kind of came into line. So this was exactly what happened in Sivagri as well. So there is a, the person who built this all, um, funny story, he, my, when my parents moved to the US, their very first friend that my mom made when she was walking around with me in a stroller around the park was this woman named Chitra. And we kind of lost touch for 20 plus years. And somehow, coincidentally, they got back in touch. And, and when they had reached out, they were like, we run a school. Gautam should come by if he has any time. So I stopped by and I fell absolutely in love with the work that they do. So I stayed there for a month and I got to learn so much from what they do. So the person who built and ran this, his name is Karthi. I'm really excited to interview him in the next few weeks. And the way he approached the problem of education and the things that he needed in that village, he literally went down systematically and said, where do we start and where do we need to get to? So the first thing that they built was, and this is something we've talked a lot, is they built a school for, for English specifically. So English, why is that necessarily important? So what he was what he found in a lot of his work, and I think it was really cool, is that the power of English was very much tied to a lot of students' ability to believe in themselves and their own confidence. So a lot of times when they would, no matter how well educated you are, when you get to that interview, if you've never been trained in edu in English, you have a significantly harder time in being able to speak, you know, outside of having a few memorized lines of my name is blah, and I studied this, right? If someone asks you, okay, what's your favorite book? All of a sudden, you no longer have a memorized answer. You're going to have a really hard time answering that. So what is that does- interviewing outside of India or even inside of the country? Even inside of India. Exactly. That's a really good question, right? Because what has now transpired is a lot of the tech jobs, a lot of which is a lot of the professions and, and the things that people study for. The interviews are conducted in English. It's it's kind of a, a, a testament to your own education of whether you can speak this language outside of what you're speaking at home or to your family ever. And so there is this extra challenge. So in, in, in the US, one thing that we don't ever have to really think about is everyone speaks English and that's the language that we were taught and most people have a decent grasp of it. What it would be synonymous to is if everyone learned English and we spoke it at home, but then to get a job, you'd have to speak Spanish, right? All of a sudden, now you've built another value for this language that has nothing to do with just your ability to communicate and live your life, 
because you may never speak English to anyone you know, but all of a sudden you now have to speak English just to get a job and you have to speak English and you may not even use it there. So one thing he really focused on is he understood that the resources that he was able to provide to the students, you can't teach English to a ton, ton of kids unless you have a really thorough system. You have to have money, you have to have time, you have to have resources, but that's not necessarily possible. But what you can do is to build the confidence. So from a young age, have listened to English, whether it's listening to songs, whether it's watching movies, whether it's like learning how to say, how are you doing today? You know, simple things where you have the confidence and it's already been gone through your brain where you're like, okay, if I hear English the next time, I feel that at least I can kind of do it or I'm competent enough to understand it eventually. That, I think even taking Spanish for three years, now if someone was to say, hey, you need to learn Spanish, I at least believe that I could do it. If I had never heard Spanish ever, I feel like my relationship with learning that language would be different. And so they started their first educational journey with kind of building the school. It's called the kind of a school of English. They have reached out to about, they work with 10 schools nearby. And so I was able to work at one of the schools. And so I want to just quickly draw out what the rest of their plan was. And then we can kind of get into more of the nitty gritty details. So once they built that, now you have education. What's the next problem that you have? Employment. So one of the things that they had found is that a lot of the people who lived in the village would be educated the same as other people who were getting jobs in the big tech, tech hubs, such as Bangalore and Mumbai. But the difference was a lot of people needed to stay back at their farm, whether to take care of their parents, to take care of the farm. For some reason or another, they couldn't go into the big city. So what he kind of postulated was all that's happening is all the people who were educated here simply move to Bangalore and then get a job there. Why can't they just work here itself? It's remote work anyway. Why can't they stay here and work? So what he wanted to do then was build an environment in which people can go one, find employment and two, actually work. Because you need a place that has good Wi-Fi. You need a place where there's like a trustable management system. So he built out this, it's a consulting company-esque, but what they do is he lived in the US for a long time and he you know, ran a few startups and has a pretty large network. And so he brings people who are interested to work with the people from that place. He creates some sort of management system for each individual and then provides them employment. And so when, when I want to picture the type of place that he lives in, it's like a villa. Imagine like one of these villas on Love Island or something. That's kind of what he's built for himself in this farm. It's, it's fully embedded in nature. There's so much open space and there's a huge place for all the people who work there to work. And so he, that was the second part. The third part of his plan is, now how do we actually focus on the, the development of the quality of life for the people there, right? And so we've talked about this earlier, but exposure is a really, really big thing that different organizations focused on. If you've never seen what a city life is like, if you've never seen what life outside of your state, your community, your, your traditions are like, it's really hard to imagine a world that looks different than the world that you're in. So he wanted to bring things that were heavily influential in the outside to his village. So as of late, the last big project they did is they conducted a marathon for 8,000 people to come and run. And so that was a huge deal. And now they're trying to do that every single year. So the next one is coming up in June. And so he has this other kind of side of it, which is how do we create events and opportunities for people to learn from what's happening outside? So he has marathons, he has speakers who always come in and talk to all the people that work for him. And, and they kind of teach, they teach them about what else is happening, what more there is to the world. And so 
one thing I want to, and, and this is not to say that everything he's doing is perfect. I mean, in everyone's journey in the re-educate, every, there's going to be places where maybe you're not doing the best job you possibly can, right? But this is to say that the thoughtfulness that exists in figuring out all the ways in which you can impact a community, I think is really there. And I, I was very much in awe and appreciating the thoroughness in the thinking that was there. So yeah, so I'm really excited to kind of get into some of these. Okay, I have, a, I have a few questions about some of the things we just talked about. So you mentioned there were three kind of components to the school, the first being teaching English. Was it was there an actual curriculum that they taught or was it just exposure through music and film and the things you mentioned? Yeah, great question. So there is a curriculum that they drew. And one thing I wanna actually quickly take a tangent and say is when I was at the conference in Delhi, I met this really cool organization. I, I didn't end up getting to stay in touch with them, but it was called Karadi, which stands for Bear and Tamil. And I think it was Karadi Dream or Karadi English. I'll, I'll, I'll link it in the, in the bio. But their entire study, they just conducted tons of research for the best methodology to learn language and learn English in specific for the people of their community. And they had found that one of the best ways is through passive learning. So they would just watch movies in English, they would play music and, and they would kind of just play games that involved learning music in. So I actually interacted with them for a, a bit and I picked up a lot of the skills that they were teaching and I tried to implement that myself. So the curriculum that they have was built out by one of the people that they know. And so there's a lot of like reading, writing, grammar, the, the typical shindig, right? But one of the things that I had suggested to them as well, and, and I kind of tried to embed in my own teaching, especially of English, is we have to really think, does grammar matter? I mean, even to proper English speakers like who live in the US, for example, there is a huge resistance towards learning grammar here. And so when the extent of language that you're going to be using is to perhaps speak at an interview or you know, present to, to your boss, the type of English that you need in your grasp of the language is very different than someone who wants to get into poetry, someone who wants to get into expressing themselves, right? So this, the this function of language serves very different things for different people. For some people, as, as English is my first and really only language that I, I primarily use, English mean to me is not just a means of communication. It's a means of understanding the world, it's a means of understanding myself, and it's a means of exploration. So my ability to learn new words really matters because I'm not under I'm not perceiving the world through a different modality of language. Every thought I have is in English. So if you give me five new vocabulary words and all of a sudden it becomes integral to my experience, that has heavily influenced my experience of the world. Now, let's say you're someone who doesn't think in English. Let's say English no longer serves that utility. So whether you know words like um, onomatopoeia may not really matter because you never are using these words. I mean, that was the largest word I could think of. I, mean, I couldn't really think of anything larger, but you know, it, it's, it serves a different utility. So the same way you teach English has to change based on what their need for it is, right? So when you think about if it's your first language, and I think uh, Dead Poet Society does a great job of this, you can't look at, as an English first speaker, native speaker, you can't look at it as like, what is the means? Do I need to know grammar for this? Do I need to write poetry for this? Because what it is, is it's your, you have to expand your world through language. But 
in this context, it's not the same. And so they don't need to like really learn all these complex words. So even in their in their text, they would have all these words that they would never use. They were like, like they would throw like SAT GRE words in there and they highlight them and say, okay, well, this is what this means. And then it's for gun because it's never going to be said. So we, I tried to implement a lot of games in when I was teaching English. So one of the games that the kids loved is they were having a really hard time making large sentences. And so they would just completely stray away from it. They would say, hey, um, how are you doing today? And, you know, that would be, and then they would ask questions like that. And then if I would say, hey, everyone has to speak a little bit to each other, everyone would say, my favorite food is biryani, right? Like, or my favorite movie is, so you pretty much have like a sentence structure and you just replace a few words and then you say that you speak sentences. But I was like, how do we kind of build on that? So we had a game where we kind of got into little teams. And I was like, everyone come up with a sentence that has five words. And so everyone would like think really hard, come up with one that had five words. Then, okay, then it's like, all right, next round, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. What I was trying to push them to do, and this is one thing, you know, and now we're talking a little bit about pedagogy, but this is something I've really learned. Kids love gaming. Like people love gaming, where you turn anything into a game, people will love it. It doesn't even matter if the thing that they're learning is not interesting. Once it's a game, they're like, I want to win. I was going to so, say, gamifying anything, I think, is a really effective teaching strategy always. I know that I took French in high school, too, and I know that I was the most engaged always when it was a, a game, as opposed to just like a very traditional uh, like curriculum where there was a lecture things written on the board, et cetera. I think anytime it was interactive, I found myself the most, uh, the most engaged and also just like absorbing the material so much better. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think that's a phenomenal example as well, because it just, there's something about it that makes you be like, okay, I want to learn this, this skill better just so I can win. Right. I mean, just for whatever other reason gamifying something does, people want to learn it. So the kids had a blast playing that game. And so what what they eventually got to is they realized, oh, we have to use words like when, while, who, so that they can combine parts of sentences to make it longer. So, I, I mean, I it just the reason I feel so much joy saying this is because I could see their faces light up when they figured out how to use words that would combine sentences. So they would say something like before, if they were to say, I went home from school today and watched TV. Now they would say, I went home from school and watched TV while I played with my sister. And all of a sudden they're like, whoa, I can add five words. I can add 10 words. And now I have a 15 word sentence. And they got shocked by it. Another game that they loved is we went in a circle and there's about 20 kids in this class. And we went in a circle and we said, say an English word, any English word. And we went in a circle and you have to say a word, any word that you know. And if someone has already said it, you're out of the circle. So it was like super intense. Everyone was like whispering into each other's eyes as it got into each other's ears as there was like three or four people. They're like, come on, I basketball, you balloon. And you get another gamification way that made learning English not just like, a, oh, this is something I have to do. And so we would try playing a whole bunch of games. Another one kids loved, I just feel like there were so many, is if I say one, so we have to build a sentence together. This is an improv game that I learned where um, I think we've played this too. I think I'll start a word like he. And then you have to add a word anywhere in the sentence. So you say, he says, and then I have to now add one to that word. So I says, he says, hello. And then you keep adding words. And we had the kids only add it to the end of the sentence. So they didn't get too confused. And you have to memorize. So you're working on your memorization and you're working on how to build long sentences, right? Because once you're at six, now you're like, where do I throw the word to add it? It 
it was just a kind of shift from their original curriculum, which was a lot more like learn these words, memorize them, read. Um, and it was something more that made learning English fun. So yeah, that was long about answer to your question about curriculum. Yeah. And I think now they're making shifts towards more of a, a gamified way of, of learning English. That's really cool. Did you feel like the measures that you took or the school took to build confidence, that was something you mentioned earlier. Did you feel like that really made, did you see that make a difference as a native English speaker? Did you see the results of that during your time there? Huge. I, I can't tell you how big it was. So I had gone here in July for two days. And that's when, you know, I, I, I met, met up with them, fell in love with their place. And I was like, I have to come back in December. So I came back and stayed with them for a month from the end of November to until I left. And in the span of those six months, the amount of ability of the kids to read, write, to speak confidently changed drastically, right? I mean, even how shy they were originally to how much more confident they felt. I mean, because what it was, it was, it was an entire cultural thing. Like all the other teachers were like, how are they speaking English so well? All their parents are like, what are you guys doing at the school? They're speaking so well. There was a whole kind of energy of like, oh, these kids are actually learning English. And what that kind of, it wasn't just like you were learning a skill. It, there's kind of this hope that gets attached with learning that language of like, perhaps you'll be able to like find a way out. Perhaps you'll be able to find something better or larger, greater, whatever you want to put, adjective you want to use. There was this hope attached to learning that skill that I've never seen before, where it was like, this is your ticket out, learn it well. And to, to kind of, as a kid, you're not going to really picture, understand that, right? You're not going to understand, oh, wow, this is this important because of X, Y, or Z reason. But I feel like all the other adults around them understood the importance of that. And so like the ability for these teachers to come and work with them and, and teach them English really well, I thought was um, truly an, a great opportunity for them and the students. It sounds like it. I know that for myself, I mentioned that I learned French in high school, despite having taken, I mean, I took uh, six years in junior high and high school together, and then I took another year in college. And so cumulatively seven years, despite that, confidence is such a big issue for me. And I think that I had really great formal training in terms of like a very traditional curriculum that involved like flashcards and other forms of rote memorization. But the the confidence building, I think, wasn't developed enough in, in my experience. And so I find myself so paralyzed now when I try to speak it, despite the fact that I, I know that I have uh, the knowledge, I just don't have the confidence to speak. And it almost just defeats the purpose. I mean, what was the point of learning seven years of French if you just are too afraid to ever speak it, you know? So um, I think that's super important. Um, can we talk a little bit more about the second kind of category that the school covered about, um, you know, providing a, a community for these people who have the education but may not want to travel to a bigger city and work, you know, outside of their homes? What can you talk a little bit more about like what yeah. went into it then? Yeah, yeah. Also, you're you're a good host. I think you'd make a good host. Can you talk a little bit yeah. more about it? It's like a little journalist thing to say that's good. Um, you know, okay, so I feel like I had an interesting journey with this. So I've actually interviewed two people on this podcast um, back to back. So I talked with the person who runs the Center for Education in the Workforce. And then before then, I talked with uh, Professor Dr. Monty Johnson. 
And so they had very differing views on what education stood for. And one of the biggest differences between both of their philosophies was the importance of training when it came to education. And this is something that's been talked about for a long time. How important is your ability to be employed part of something that a quote unquote good education system should contain? And there's no clear answer to this. Everyone has diff differing uh, points of views on this. And what I would say is when you come from a society in which you will find some sort of employment or labor that will be good enough to sustain you and your family, then you can kind of look to education as what else does it serve, right? Okay, so even if I get an A plus in all my classes, or even if I get Bs and Cs in all my classes, if I'm if I'm set to find some sort of employment to sustain myself and my family, then education now gets to have the opportunity to serve something larger. So you can be like, okay, well, I want to understand who I am. I want to understand my relationship between me and the world or me and other people. Education becomes something larger. But if you live in a society where the only way you're able to find employment is if you excel at the highest degree in education, then all of a sudden now it serves something different. So what, what all of these connect back to is the how your labor market is doing at any particular given time. Like how easy is it for someone to find employment and, and good employment and good here, meaning something enough to sustain themselves. In India, one thing that I really noticed about uh, the population is a lot of people are self-employed. Self I mean, so many people. You, I came back to the Bay Area and I haven't seen a single, I barely run into self-employed people. Everyone is employed by someone else. But in India, there were so many people who'd run a small shop. I mean, you just drive through the streets, you see so many shops. Everyone's either running their tiny little mom and pop shop. They're running like a little, they cut coconuts and give people, you know, everyone kind of runs their small little thing. And so the community just funds themselves. So someone goes to, there's one barber, there's one, and they run their own little shop. Everyone runs a small shop of their own. And so what ends up happening is education becomes really crucial if you want to leave that. If you want to somehow leave uh, working at these small mom and shop, mom and pop shops, which may help you, you know, eat, feed yourself for a few, but you, you'll have no kind of support system for the long run of like, if you get really sick or if you can't work, right, all of a sudden life becomes really hard. So what ends up happening, there's a huge percent of young people who are fighting for a small percent, small amount of jobs. And most of these jobs are in IT. And so you just have every person in the whole country becoming an engineer. I mean, uh, we talked about the episode one, but the number of people I met who were who had gotten either their bachelor's or their master's and were still not working in the field that they had studied was astounding to me. I mean, I met people who were doing copies at the Xerox shop. There'd be like a Xerox shop where everyone comes in just to get copies. They had like their master's in computer science, right? And so it was like, there's this huge divide in how much education, like formal education is being done versus what type of opportunities people have for employment. So what that really got me thinking is, oh, okay, perhaps maybe the way I was thinking about this was very tailored to the US context, where I was like, okay, even, you know, you work as a Amazon worker, you work, you, you get paid $15 an hour, which comes out to $120 a day. You can, you know, kind of say, hey, that's not enough in a lot of places to live, but you can feed yourself for the most part. And a lot of people are able to sustain themselves at least with like minimum wage jobs um, across the country. But I would say it's, it's a very different reality that exists in India where even the poor are really, really poor. And so 
doing everything you possibly can to help your family rise out of that, which only happens through education is part of the, the narrative of what a good life looks like. And so what I realized from that experience is there is education, a part of it is in training. There is no education without training. You can't be greatly educated and unemployed and, and suffering because of that. And, and it cannot be completely disconnected from each other. While that is not to say training is all of it, it is just to say that it is very important to also value that without making it the whole thing. Because I feel like there a lot of the progressive education systems kind of avoid really talking about training or really talking about getting high level employment. So even a lot of these like liberal art colleges, I mean, they'll, they'll say, hey, you need to study gender studies and you need to study third world, you know, they kind of throw all these classes at you without really a pathway for you to find real employment. And so you have tons of students who kind of, you know, are in student debt because there was never really a pathway between what you were educated in and what you're actually doing. And so you don't want either extreme, right? Yeah. What were you going to say? I, I was just going to ask, is this, is this how you feel about education in India specifically or, or just, or generally would that apply to the U S because I know that you and I have talked about your education philosophy before. And I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like in the past you haven't felt like the training part or at least the employment part is as important. I think this is the first time I'm hearing you say this. So I'm just curious to know if this is specific to India or if this is kind of, if your, if your views have just changed over time. Yeah. So my views have changed over time. Right. And I think that that's what I'm saying. This experience really showed me how education without that, that leg of, okay, you are able to find this type of employment for yourself is really empty. And so in, in, in my view, at this point, the best forms of education will be able to help you choose the job that you want. But that the ability to choose between profession between that's a really strong education. But if you're educated in a certain way, but you're not able to pick between jobs, if you don't really have the skill sets to be able to choose between whether you want to be a doctor or a lawyer, whether you want to be a, a you know, I mean, any of the, the list goes endless. But if you don't have that ability to choose, then I think it, it's a, it was a failed education. But yeah, I think just seeing the amount that people were educated and how much they didn't have employment was truly, I think, a, sh a shocking kind of revelation. And of the people that you encountered who were educated, did you feel like those people, uh, sorry, were educated and were employed? Did you feel like those people were employed in the field that they were trained in? Or, because I, I know I see that a lot here where there are a lot of people who have degrees that they don't use in their actual jobs. Did, did you see a lot of that there? Yeah, so that's a good question. So. They call that the sheepskin effect, basically where it's hard to actually find the value of something without understanding the value that comes from simply just saying you have something. And in India, I would say the value of saying you have a degree is much higher than whatever it is that you learned. You're pretty much retrained from as if you never went to college in most jobs. It's as if you never even stepped into college, you're retrained again. It's just to get a job and to have that trust that you did get formally educated, that saying, hey, I went to this school helps. So that's, I think, another really interesting kind of uh, dilemma to also deal with, of like how much utility is actually being spent in four years of learning, right? And so a lot of people I've met in the Bay are really big proponents of kind of skipping the whole college route 
and saying, hey, with four years, instead of doing whatever you're going to do with those schools, go and just work somewhere. Just learn whatever it is that you wanted to learn in school by failing at small little workplaces. Do it for free. Instead of paying 30000 20000 however much you're going to pay to go to a U.S. university, simply just go work for somewhere for free and learn. Understand what, they, what you can learn through doing as opposed to just someone kind of just talking monotonously at you. And so there are pros and cons to that approach. It kind of circumvents this whole idea that perhaps having a degree is just this sheepskin effect. And perhaps it is just saying, hey, I have the degree and you're actually learning what you need to know. But here's the problem. What happens if you can't find employment unless you have the degree? I mean, what if no one even bothers to look at your resume? That means you have to play the game to, to change the game. And that's something I feel like, um, that, you know, that was another area where I was like, dang, like a lot of people could not find employment had they not put, hey, I went to school, even say I went to university or say they graduated with, a math, um, you know, computer science or engineering. But you maybe just be doing something completely different. But it's just out of the virtue that you were able to graduate in that. So what were the kind of tangible measures the school had in place to bridge that gap between the education and the actual employment? So they they had this this particular organization, what they had done is they created the employment themselves. So the kids that were being taught English and there were adults as well, they were all young. So it wasn't that it wasn't the kids that were being taught, at least as of right now, who are then getting the employment. So there was still it still hadn't become those kids yet because they had just started doing this for the last decade or so. So it, that will eventually happen where the kids that, that are being taught in their English schools are the ones who are eventually working there as well. Um, but yeah. OK, I have some like fire questions about the school that. I'm curious about maybe somebody else listening is curious about. And then I have some questions about a completely different topic. But um, how is the school funded? Mm. Good question. So a lot of it came from, as we talked about in the previous episode, the CSRs, which is corporate social responsibility. So it comes from the government. Other funding comes from his own investment. A lot of it came from his investment. So he runs a few other projects that helps him make money. And then he builds these English schools out of his own investments. But I think what you're touching on is a really important question. Anybody who's interested in doing social good, the question is, how do you fund yourself, right? How do you get enough money to do the good that you want to do? And this is a tough question. And a lot of the people I met at these organizations would complain about this often. They're like, we care so much about the action but we hate that we're getting completely bottlenecked by focusing on how are we going to get paid to do it? How are we going to somehow figure out how to keep the money coming in so that we can continue doing it? So some of the best ways I think I have seen some organizations do this, and I haven't talked about this. So I, one thing is having someone from a very early stage, whole kind of job and day, just be focused on that, right? How do you fill as many grants as possible. How do you, you know, having that network of people who will be able to get you those fundings are really important. So if anyone is listening and would be interested, I can set you up with some of the, the groups that I've met in India who help to find funding too. So there's a lot of people who do amazing work in US as well as in, in Europe who basically connect with a lot of these organizations in India and give them funding as well. So how I found out a lot about the Goodler School and a few others is through an organization that I had worked with in uh, the Netherlands, uh, the Humane Warriors episode with Naveen, uh, I think 23 possibly. And 
he basically connects nonprofit organizations to India with donors from Europe. And so his latest project was con connecting a bunch of refurbished laptops from all these big companies, and he was just channeling them to schools and students who needed them. And so there's a ton of the, the, the concept of one man's trash is another man's treasure. I mean, that that's really true. There's a lot of things that are thrown out from these uh, more westernized and, and developed nations. And, and all of those things are just thrown away, whether it's laptops. I mean, I was looking through my quote unquote old laptops and they were decades ahead of the laptops a lot of the students were using if they even had laptops. So I was like, okay, let me send those over there. I mean, what change, like, it's just understanding that funding exists, but you always need to be mindful of reaching out to people to go get it, right? But it's out there just in the nebula somewhere and you got to just be connected to the right people to get it. So they were. So they had gotten a lot of the funding from friends, from family, from uh, the government, from a lot of these other organizations, and then they were able to run their their full organization. So that was supposed to be like rapid style fire, rapid fire style questioning, but um, there's just too much to say about this school. So let's move on to the next topic because we could talk about it forever. All right. So I want to talk about just your traveling through India in general. Um, why did you choose to travel the way that you did where you, you know, hopped around from school to school as opposed to just choosing a school and committing to that place for a longer period of time? Yeah, that's a good question. I had this conversation with someone and their philosophy was that my experience would have been better if I had I stayed seven months in one school. And I think there's a lot of virtue to that as well. It's kind of hard to determine how you want to go about your understanding of the world. You can either do it through depth or you can either do it through breadth. And that's a that's a fundamental education question as well. Is it better to learn something as deep as you possibly can, or is it better to be exposed to as many things as you can without going deeply into any of them? The way I kind of pictured it was I tried to strike a middle between the two where I was, I felt that two to three weeks, you know, anywhere between 10 days and 40 days helped me get a better understanding of what the community and environment was like without getting too deep to where I could not see as many as I wanted to see. Some of the things that I wanted to understand in India was how was education between the government schools, between the private schools? What was education like between people who were in poorer communities versus in richer communities? What was education like for Hindus versus Muslims? What was education like between people who lived in farms versus people who lived in the mountains versus people who lived in the cities? There were so many things that I wanted to understand that I had tried to partition my, my traveling so I could do as much as I possibly could. But perhaps I didn't do it right, right? Perhaps a better way to do something like this is to really, so the question becomes, how long does it take for you to really know someplace? That's the real question. And we've had this conversation before. I, used, I, I stayed in Hawaii for one month and I sometimes say I lived in Hawaii, right? Because when I think about it, perhaps a month is long enough. But for someone who's lived there for 10 years, they'd say, well, you can't really see anything in a month. I've heard people say that about India, right? I mean, you will always hear how you didn't experience experience something full enough. I've had people say, oh, you didn't go to East India? Oh, you've never seen India. Oh, you didn't go to this one tiny little city? you never seen India. Oh, you didn't stay in Tamil Nadu for two years? You, you know, there will always be something to question that you didn't experience something fully enough. And I think they're all very valid points because there is no way you can experience everything there is 
in in just it, all of what humanity is doing in one go. I feel like that's something that I really wanted to do, even in this traveling and, and my adventures that I've planned. There's this desire in me as if I can experience all that is to be experienced. And I think this is perhaps maybe one nugget of wisdom I feel like I've picked up from even seeing how my parents talk about India and comparing that to what my experience of India was. My parents lived in India for 23 years and then they moved to the U.S. and now they've lived longer in the U.S. than they lived in India. And so when they talk about India, being able to reflect and understand that the India that they talked about is the India of 1998 and not the India of 2024 makes me realize that even if you stay somewhere for 23 years, the second you leave, it's no longer the same. I went to American high school. I lived in Fremont for 18 years. I've left. They've built new stuff. I no longer know Fremont. Mm -hmm. So it is to understand that no matter how you travel, there is never going to be a point where you really understand it all. But that does not mean that what you think or what you believe should be silenced. And that's something I really feel like I also learned that I did not. So when I speak about India, India, that is not a real word. There's no such thing as India's X, India's Y. It's too big and too diverse and too different for anyone to ever throw a blanket statement of India is this. And that's the same thing I heard about the US. Everywhere I've traveled, people talk about the US as if it's just one homogenous place. As if people in Florida are the same as people in the Bay Area, as in people in Texas are in the same as they are in DC. They're not. It's just hard. It's hard to speak about what the experience of the US is like for an immigrant versus someone who's white versus someone who's black. It's just hard. And so the best thing you can do. So, I mean, so here's the question, right? I want to understand education, but I can't. It's too large. It's too big of a thing. And it's done in too many different ways all over the world. So it's an endless journey where you can keep trying to learn more. You're like, maybe I can see how it's done here. Maybe I can understand this perspective. But then you end up realizing you can't learn it all. So at some point you have to say, I have done enough exploring and now I'm ready to start converting that into my own ideas, into my own action. This process of learning versus action is fundamental to what a good education looks like. Understanding for yourself, when do I need to just be okay with the, the material that I've collected? And when do I act? If you're, people say this a lot about startups. A lot of reasons startups fail or new ideas fail is because people wait too long to create that first episode. They take too long to build that first prototype. If you listen back to the re-educated first episode, it's way different than what it sounds like now. And that's something I really I had to learn. I, it, it just, you can improve after you start. It doesn't have to be perfect that first time. And that's the same thing with learning. You don't have to learn everything there is about something before you take your first step forward. You can get to a place where you're like, I think I'm ready. Take that first step and then learn how it feels like after taking and then adjust, adjust, adjust. And I think that's a fundamental thing to this uh, kind of concept of did I go to enough schools for long enough or should I have gone to more for maybe one week at a time or should I perhaps have done less and maybe gone to three schools and stayed there three months at a time. So, I mean, I just think I'm really curious to hear how different people travel and, and, and what their kind of um, wisdom is into this. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really like personal experience to each individual. I know that you and I have talked about this also. Like I've traveled um in ways where I've done like I've traveled through Europe, for example, where I did a little bit in one country, a few days in one country, and a few days in the next, and a few days in the next. And I know 
people are critical of that form of traveling for that, for what we talked about just now about how you may not be able to really fully assimilate or indoctrinate yourself into the culture. But um, I know that there, I mean, I enjoyed traveling in that way at the time, at least because I, I was, I was satisfied with the exposure I got to each of those countries and all those cultures. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm pretty easily satisfied with like trying a local meal, going to a museum or two, seeing the major landmarks and feeling good about, about that. But, you know, other people like to travel very differently. And, uh, you actually encouraged me to travel differently the last time I went to Europe where I spent more time in one country and really just like, it, it did a deep dive there. Um, and spent time with locals and all of that. And I felt like it offered me a very different, just a different perspective. And it it was beneficial for completely different reasons. So I think, I think there are definitely pros and cons to both, but I want to know, what do you think about your travels? Did you, did you feel like you actually captured all of the things that you'd mentioned were your goals, you know, seeing the different, uh, different, the different regions and how low-income students learned and higher income students and, and all of that did did you feel like you got enough and are you ready to take those actions that you mentioned taking at this point yeah so i'll start with the first half um yeah i want to take a step back to just like think about as we wrap this series up and in some weird ways in my brain i've been doing things that have kind of been summing up this entire experience into little nuggets I put together all the songs that people, you know, showed me and I've been putting it into one large playlist to be like, these are all the songs that represented India to me. And even through that, there's been this memory that I was there at some point. I feel like that's been a really weird thing as of late. And so before I talk about this traveling thing, I think the thing that I think is most important, like what you just said, which is each person's beliefs of traveling are very different. The same way how we want to be educated and what we think is a good education is very deeply personal. So is what you think is the value of traveling. If you enjoy doing one day at a time at 30 different countries purely for the exposure for just what it looks like in an instant, then that's what calls you. However, if you enjoy sitting in one place, never seeing a single landmark, never seeing any tourist sites, and you just go somewhere in the forest in the middle of Germany, you go to the Black Forest and you just sit inside there for one month. That's also another great way to travel. The thing is, being influenced by how other people travel is, I think, the worst way to go about traveling. Just because 10 other people went to Cancun for three days and stayed at a resort does not mean you have to travel like that as well. And figuring out what type of traveling you like takes taking a pause and a break from posting it on the internet, telling all your friends you went, and simply just experiencing it. What is it like? Like forget the, the social value that comes from telling others you travel. Internally, intrinsically, what was traveling like for you? Did you enjoy it? Did you come out exhausted? Like what, what was it like? Did you feel like you connected with people? Did you feel like you learned about the world? Figuring out why it is that you travel and then figuring out whether you actually did that or not is the fundamental relationship an individual should have with traveling. But what is traveling? I mean, really, if I leave my city and go to the city nearby that I've never been to, does that count as traveling? Yes. If I've never gone to the grocery store and I go for the first time, is that traveling? Yes. 
But perhaps, as we mentioned earlier, what if I've already gone to that grocery store, but I go a week later and they changed some parts of it. They changed the layout a little bit. Is it a new grocery store? Many would argue yes. So is it possible that you could look at every day as a travel, every day as an adventure? Because what are you doing in a new day? You're creating something that doesn't exist. What happens tomorrow does not exist. Anything could happen tomorrow. So you are creating an entire new day. You are interacting with people you've never interacted with just out of the sense of who they are tomorrow is different than who they are today. And so I have a friend who used to travel to the grocery store and, and think of it like a trip. He was like, hey, who wants to come on this trip with me? Or he would look at every day as kind of this entire overarching adventure to be lived, not just, okay, these are days traveling means when I go to Europe on a plane and I stay there for one week or two weeks, right? That wasn't what a travel was to him. And I think that's one of the things that I've had to really critique and, and think about for myself now of what was the point of this whole thing? Sometimes I look back and I feel like because India is so different, when I went to Europe, I didn't feel this because it felt like my life in Europe was still very much connected to my life back home. I feel like when you go to a country that's completely different and you don't see any resemblance of what I saw there back here ever, I don't see any of the traditions, I don't see any of the colors, I don't see any of that back here. It makes you feel like you just had a dream. I sometimes wake up and I'm like, I had a six and a half month dream that I just woke up from and now I'm back in the Bay Area. It feels like it never happened. I look through the pictures. I don't remember who they are anymore. I look through my journal notes. I'm like, did I write that? I think about all those schools I went to. I was like, was I really there? Like, was I really? And I no longer even feel like I was the one who did that. People now ask me, hey, how was India? Did you like it? I think I did. I mean, I liked it uh, kind of. I, I don't remember. I, I don't remember it anymore. It was just something that happened. But what I do know is that the six and a half months I was there, I was present, I was alive, and I loved every moment of it. I mean, the challenges, the, the pains, the, the sadness, the exhaustion, all of it was part of the experience. And so what this has really been making me think is we sometimes play these experiences really high up in our brain. We're like, okay, I'm going to go on this. It's going to be life-changing, and it's going to be the most magical thing in the world. They're just not. Each thing, going to grad school was a two-year phase of my life that I was in love with, the people I met, but there was a lot of pain. And then those two years end, and then it feels like a dream. UCSD was four years, going to high school was four years, traveling through Hawaii, Boston, Mexico City, that was a whole year. Like being in Europe for three months, was they were all just memories, and, and they don't even feel real anymore. So what I, why I say that is now when I look at my life, I'm realizing now that there is no experience and no event where I'm going to do and then feel like, wow, that was it. My life is done. I did it all. There is nothing like that. You finish something that you think is a big deal. And then in a week later, you normalize to it. Your brain says, hey, you did it. It's done. What's the next thing you're going to do now? There, I could not sit there and sit, think about India for weeks and be like, wow, I really did that. That was awesome. Now it's just stored in a few, you know, I have a few minutes of memory just stored somewhere in my brain. I'm like, that was awesome. I did that. And now I'm looking forward to the next thing that comes in my life. And I say this to say, sometimes I think the way a lot of people think is, hey, I'm going to work really hard so I can retire one day and, and, and go to Spain for like one month. Or I'm going to, you know, there's this belief that this better world exists in the future. And a lot for a lot of people that dream is traveling. But I think after having traveled for, in the last two years, I've traveled for almost 11 months. It's just to understand that 
the same turmoils that you have when you are not traveling is the same turmoils that you'll have either after traveling or during traveling, depending on how long you're traveling for. Your mindset is your mindset, no matter where you are. And so getting to a place where you're comfortable with that, where you're peaceful with who you are, with how you move through the world and how your relationships with, with our others, that is what changes everything. It has nothing to do with how many stamps are on your passport, how many countries you can post on your Instagram stories. I mean, none of that matters. The turmoil within, if you have it here in California, you're going to have that in Mexico. You're going to have that in Washington. You're going to have that in India and in China. It does not matter. And so it's a thing we were talking about earlier. There's too many countries. You can't experience it all. So even if you're like, I'm so well-traveled. Yeah, I've been to seven countries. There's like 190 of them. You're never going to know what it's like in Bosnia. You're never going to know what it's like in, you know, Argentina. You can't go to all of them. So at some point, you have to sit back and understand, okay, maybe I'm never going to understand the whole world. Maybe that's not my duty. And, and this is a really big education thing. I think when you look at a lot of these scientists, sometimes I'm curious, what is the drive? Is it to understand the entire universe? Is that possible? Right. I mean, it feels like as you open up these doors of, OK, here's another here's another understanding of this nuclear device. Here's an understanding of this part of subparticle. It seems that more and more doors open. It doesn't seem like they're closing. It doesn't seem like we're getting a better understanding of the universe. It feels like every door we understand now we've opened it and there's 10 more doors that exist. And the question is, what is the purpose of knowledge? Really, is it to understand everything and is it possible? And if it's possible, then perhaps a good life is one that's spent just trying to understand the, as the world as much as possible. But perhaps there comes a time where you realize, okay, I have tried hard enough to learn as much as I can about the world and what I have is enough. And I am now going to focus all of that attention inwards and on my community around me. Am I at that place to do that? No, because I'm too scared to actually be that committed and, 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 and devoted to one area when I love running. And to me, traveling now feels as some form of running where it's, it's novel, you don't know it exists, it's an experience and it's an adventure. And I feel like there always is that call to adventure within me. But I think what I'm realizing now is that there is no adventure that is going to be great enough that makes me feel content unless I really go inwards. And so I think that was one of the bigger realizations I've had since coming home from India. But yeah, thanks for listening to that monologue. <laughs> Anytime. Okay. One piece of advice for a novice traveler. Mm. I mean, yeah, I think the, the number one thing that I definitely, um, hold to myself and I kind of, uh, always do when I'm traveling with people is information is key, right? The most valuable thing you own when you're traveling is not your purse is not it's information about yourself. And so you want to hand that out to others very carefully. I've had situations where once I learned this in Europe, where I used to kind of willy nilly throw out the fact that I was American, because I was like, Yeah, I'm American, I want to kind of flex that it's awesome being American so cool. And I had some situations where it worked very poorly for me. And saying that I was American wasn't all that helpful. And what it made me realize is you have to be careful with that information. So nowadays, my philosophy around uh, 
conversations, especially with strangers, is if someone's going to ask me for information, I'm going to ask them for twice as much information. Someone asks you your name, don't just tell them your name. Say, my name is this, what's your name? Where are you from? Now you have two pieces of information on them. They say, okay, well, I'm from here. What do you do? I do this. What do you do? And, right, always make sure you have as much information about the other, if not more, about them. I think what a lot of people I've seen, especially when I when I see other Americans traveling, is and I saw a lot of um, Europeans and, and foreigners in India kind of fall in love with the celebrity that kind of comes from being there, where people are awing over you, everyone's talking to you, and they kind of lose themselves in the sauce. And they tell everything about their lives to everyone who listen. And I think that's another great way to travel too. I mean, I think if you're down to take the road of full openness and say, okay, I'm not even going to worry about any of the stuff that I own or anything, and I'm simply just going to be as loving and trusting as possible, that's another great way to travel. But I just think if you want to play a little safer route where you're right in the middle, is don't just like tell everyone. It's a very like kind of you can tell the younger travelers from the older ones based just based on how happy they are to talk about themselves. Like talk to other people, but always kind of have your guard up a little bit. Don't be too like reckless and just tell everyone where you're from, what you do. You know, these are all very private information about you that can be used against you as well. And another basic one I would say is just don't drink, like don't drink with your friend, unless you're with somebody who's from the place that you're going to and drinking, try to just not drink, especially late at night. If you're with people from that area, you have friends in that area, then go, you can do whatever you want. But my, my, my main thing is just, I will never, I don't drink, but even if I was to, I will never drink with just other foreigners ever in a place that we don't know. That's good advice. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, thank you for listening. I just feel like this, um, even as this conversation comes to an end, I'm a little sad. And in some ways of just the fact that this adventure does come to an end. And there's a part of me that's like, can I up this? Right. Can I? This was a pretty crazy one for me to just solo backpack through a country, which is one bag for seven months and, and go to these places um, by foot, by bus, by car can I up that, you know, and, and, and there are parts of me that think maybe I can't. And I guess the reflection for me is now, what does that mean if I can't? Is it okay if I don't? Is it okay if this is kind of the, the most intense adventure I ever do in my life? And the other part of me is like, why not do something more intense next time? Maybe do China next, right? Six months through backpacking through China. Do it in a country you don't know a single person and you don't know the language either. What happens then? So, I think I'm leaving that open. I know I'll be back in Europe for three months. I no longer really count that as like a really challenging adventure. Um, but I'm really excited to spend three months building conferences, um, working with a lot of the people that I met there. And yeah, I'm really excited to sh continue learning about education and uh, seeing where it takes us. I'm excited to see what's next for you. Yeah, thanks for hosting this episode. My pleasure, thanks for having me. And that brings us to the end of our conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you again for listening and making this process so much more enjoyable. If you haven't had the chance to already, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts to get the latest updates on new episodes. If you've been learning useful information here, feel free to leave a review as well. A little bit goes a long way in spreading this podcast. And have a wonderful day. And as per usual, stay re-educated.